How's everybody doing? Happy Memorial Day weekend. I like this. I talked to one church planner, said Memorial Day weekend, his Sunday, the audience was the band and one spouse of a band member. And uh, so this is a little better showing than that. So I'm Josh. I'm a pastor here. A couple things. Next week, Chandler alluded to this, we're switching spots, but we're also switching books. We're going to flip over to the left quite a bit to Nehemiah. That's our uh, graphic starting. So we are going to spend the summer looking at this Old Testament book, which is just key and vital to shaping the people of God. So hopefully you can, I know we have summer plans and summer travels, but uh, join us for Nehemiah as we kick off that. Before we do that, though, I just want to be cognizant of the fact that this is a church family. We celebrate family milestones. I've got my oldest is an 11-year-old. He's going to be 12 soon, and then the teenage years. But as a church family, here's the thing that we're saying bye to here. This is our first home as a church family. It's like being Aubrey's first little one-bedroom apartment in Fort Worth, Texas. We didn't have to fix anything. We could just call and they fix it. It was sweet and simple and it did what it needed to do for us in that season of life. We spent three years there and it was beautiful. And this space happened by chance. I was meeting with a friend Jack of mine. He said, hey, have you looked at this space? I said, no. And we met here and they gave it to us in the middle of COVID when all the other schools were kicking people out of their spaces. We got into this space. So I just want to stop and just thank God for his faithfulness, even in this space that he's given us for this short season. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for our first home. Thank you for this first rented space for our little church family. God, I pray that as you write our story and you continue to show us your faithfulness, that we would not forget to stop, reflect on your faithfulness to us as a church family, to our families within this church family, to the individuals within this church family, that we would always be a people that stopped and took time to say thank you. So God, we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us, forming us into your image, and doing it within this church family. And just thank you that you've been so faithful to start us in the middle of COVID, get us going when the whole world was losing its mind, and you are faithful, and you're going to continue to be faithful as we move to our next space. So God, we love you. Thank you so much just from my own heart, just all the journal entries and prayers that you've answered already in this church family. I love you. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right, we get to look at the book of John for the last time for a while. So obviously we're not at the end of John. We're going to take a break, dip into Nehemiah, and then come back to John in the fall. And we're going to do a little series in the fall as well on just sort of gender and sexuality and a lot of sort of topics that obviously are big topics right now. Uh, but we'll come back to John and we'll actually finish John next year in the middle of the year. So that's what we got as a church family. That's you can plan your calendar around those things. Here's what we're looking at in John. A very key moment that Jesus is reflecting on before it happened. And as I've been, I taught this twice already at Redemption Peoria, the question I asked, what's the biggest moment in your life? The most shaping moment for your life? Like, this is the moment. I know there's a lot, and it's kind of tiered, but is, what moment has shaped you? And as I reflect on that, as I know I was going to teach it, you know, I've, here's honestly what I land on. The birth of Ozzy. He's the one son out of four. He's the one we really like. He's, you know, the heir apparent. But more than that, we had three kids, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, and then we just started to have miscarriage after miscarriage, and then just kind of spiraled and like, the whole world got dark. We're like, man, God, where are you? Like, we didn't ask for this. And then we weren't trying, but we got pregnant. 
And I was like, all right, God, here's my one prayer request. Make it a girl. I'm sick of the dudes in this house. Like, I get it. They're full of testosterone. They, they're always having a contest about everything. Gosh, just give me a girl. So we all go to the ultrasound. Yes, girl, 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 girl. And it is a boy. And Roman burst into tears. I wanted a sister. I'm like, I get it, dude. So did I. So did I. And yet Ozzy was this little picture of God's faithfulness. We call him the little exclamation point in our life. Like, I don't have any picture of what next week's going to hold, but God is always going to have an exclamation point waiting at the end of it all, all to me. And Ozzy is that for us. So he's like the key part that shaped the Watt family so far. And what we're looking at this text is Jesus is going to talk about the most important moment in the history of the world. Ozzy is important. He is vital. He is significant. He matters to our family a lot and to the people that he knows. But Jesus is going to talk about the most important moment in the history of the universe. Where do I see that? Verse 27, he's saying, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this hour. What Jesus is now talking about in this little moment, in this little passage we get to look at tonight is this hour. This hour. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This hour is what Jesus is going to walk us through in this text in the Gospel of John. And I've got a big idea. It's very simple. It's not, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you're going to be like, duh, I get it. But I just want to say it as plainly as I can. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important moment in history, period. So maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a while, and you've heard that a lot. Maybe this is just going to be a reminder like, oh yeah, that's the pivotal moment of all of time. Ozzy was great, but Jesus' death and resurrection is what history is hinged on. Maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're like, you got invited here, and you're testing out this faith. Like, how does Jesus fit? I'll tell you where he fits. He fits at the center of everything. He is the most important person, and his death and resurrection are the key moment in all of time. There's nothing even close to being second. We're going to walk through this, and here's what I'm going to prove it through. No moment has ever carried as much weight as this moment. That's the first thing. No moment has ever brought us more victory than this moment. And no moment leaves us with more urgency than this moment, this hour that Jesus is talking about. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through and see those points there as we walk through this text. So let's read verse 27 together. Alana just did it, did a great job. Just, just context real quick. So last week John taught, here's what Jesus was talking about last week. Hey, here's what the Christian life is like, just so you know. It's like dying to yourself. It's like walking into every situation and instead of choosing to get what you want, you choose not to get what you want for the sake of love. That's the Christian life. Die to self, die to self, die to self, die to self. It was a very depressing but realistic picture of what Christianity is about. And now Jesus, I picture he kind of turns, and as he's just telling people what it means to follow him, like in his mind, he's conjuring up the fact that he is the ultimate picture of what that is. Like, it's not a theoretical death for him. It's an actual death. You have to die to self. And now he turns, in verse 27, now we're watching Jesus interact with his thoughts about his coming hour. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. 
Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not for mine. Pause there. I'm troubled. My soul is troubled. The Greek word there is deeply troubled. In anguish. Jesus turns and now he's in deep anguish. Now just a theology. Jesus is fully God, fully man. That's what historic Christianity teaches. He is fully God, fully man. He is both of those things in one. And God says this about himself in Psalms. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. God is never off the clock. In Hebrews it says this, everything is withheld by the power of his word. That is what Jesus is. Colossians says this, everything finds its center in Jesus Christ. He is in control of it all. He, he's never off. He's never confused. He's never tricked. He's always right there in the moment and in complete control of everything. And that God in the flesh says, my soul is troubled. What is he troubled about? He's God. He's troubled and yet he's created all things knows all things holds all things together and it says i'm troubled some say he's troubled by the impending death like the actual act of dying and i think that sort of just misses it because we're all going to face that and when here's the reality of being a human we all kind of look ahead to death with certain levels of anxiety so i was thinking like what makes us fearful about death i think one is the unknown like how am i actually gonna die like i have dreams to die in the most heroic heroic way ever and people write about me and it's like ah that guy was amazing and i just know me i'm gonna like forget my keys and get stranded in the woods somewhere be found like two years later and it's like what was that guy's name again but how we're gonna die nobody knows what about this who or what will leave behind now being a parent, a father, the biggest fear for me is my kids, and when I leave them, what's it going to be like for them? Not that I'm the center of all things, but I worry about that, so I face fear like that. And some commentators said, maybe Jesus is worried about his disciples. How are they going to do? And I don't buy that, because Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, pinned them every time. You 12, only 11 of you are going to last one of you is going to betray me. You're, one of you is actually going to be the reason that I go to the cross. And the rest of you are kind of boneheads. Peter, you are the biggest bonehead of them all. But you're going to make it in the end. He knows exactly how they're all going to shape up after the cross. So I don't think he's worried about what's going to happen. And on top of that, he has given us our faith, the Bible says. Faith is a gift that's been given to us by God. So he's not like, I wonder if they're going to last. He knows the gift he gave us. And if it's as big as a mustard seed, we're fine. So I don't think he's worried about that. What about what's on the other side? Even as a Christian, I know I'll be with Jesus, but like what exactly that's like, I think about a lot and it gets weird. I'm like, man, what is it? Just walk into a hallway. You're like, we know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord if you trust Jesus. How exactly that plays out, I don't know. I think it'll be great because Jesus is great. But Jesus could be like, as soon as I wake up on the other side, hey! Whoa! Jesus! Serious? What's Jesus fearful of? All the stuff that we're fearful of? What's troubling him? I'd say it this way. He is troubled because he knows he's about to carry the weight of the sin of the world. Which no one else in history has ever had to carry. He knows he's going to a cross, and he's not just dying a death like all of us are going to die. He's dying a death that no one else could bear the weight of. He is going to bear the sin of 
the world. That's why and he says, I am troubled. More than just the sin, he's going to bear the wrath of God, the Bible says. There's two words that kind of get at this in our Bible. That one is propitiation, one is expiation. Propitiation is he absorbed the wrath. So God's wrath was coming for us. Jesus stepped in the middle and took it for us. He knows he's about to receive the wrath of God. The other one is expiation. What happens now once your sins are taken care of? They are thrown out. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, that's where your sins are. He chucks out your guilt, your fear, your shame. The Old Testament had a picture for this. The high priest would have goats that they'd sacrifice. And they'd have one where like, they bring two in. And then one gets slaughtered and killed once a year to bear the weight of the sin of Israel in that moment. Dead. Propitiation, the wrath of God on this innocent creature. And the other lamb sitting there like, what is going on here? And they kind of slap him on the butt and he runs out the back door as a way to say, and then the priest would say, that's where your sin and your guilt and your fear and your shame is. It's run away. It's been absorbed, and it's been kicked out of the building. And Jesus is saying, I am troubled. It has nothing to do with the mechanics of death. It has everything to do with what that moment represents. Guilt, fear, shame, the wrath of God all rests on his shoulders in that moment. First John says this, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our wrath absorber so he is troubled what i love about jesus lots of things but even as he faces these instances where you expect his kind of godness to show forth he shows you what it's supposed to be like to be a real human in this world he is troubled and what does he do in this moment he does what he would want us to do he prays what's it say there end of verse 27 and what shall i say he goes into a prayer Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Not only does he pray, he prays exactly the same way he tells us to pray. The disciples said, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Just pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pray to God and pray that he would be glorified in all things. What does Jesus do? Father, I don't know what this moment, I'm troubled, but glorify your name. I know this is your purpose. He shows exactly what we're supposed to do. Even as he's fully God, he's showing us what it means to be more human than most of us are. We all flinch towards, we can do this. Jesus never flinched at it. He flinched towards, Father, help me. And Father, you get the glory in this moment. But what else do we see? Even in his prayer, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We see Jesus is also carrying the weight of carrying the purposes of God in a broken world for this purpose. How is sinful man and holy God, how is heaven and earth ever going to come back together? Only if Jesus fulfills his purpose will that. And he's carrying that in this. For this purpose I came. For this purpose. I was talking to a guy in the Little League field, just, you know, about Jesus, trying to sneak in the Jesus talk. What do you think about Jesus? I try to be pretty subtle. Hey, what do you think about Jesus, Dane? He's like, oh, I love Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. What do you think about Jesus' death? Well, I don't think about Jesus' death much. I said, well, then you're not a Jesus guy. You can't be a, a Jesus guy without thinking about his death because at the center of his life, his purpose, he would say, is my death and resurrection. If you're going to say, I'm not about that death, you're not about Jesus. When I was a pastor at the 
church I came from, I remember meeting with a guy that was frustrated with a lot of things, and not that any of you guys will ever get to that point with us or me here, but he was kind of doing the thing, buttering me up, you know, we just love you, and love you, Josh, and I love your family, and I'm, I'm, I'm butter, 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 and we just pray, all the Christian things you're supposed to say, we just pray for glory on your, whatever. And he says, and we just love Audrey. And I said, I'm glad you love Audrey. But my wife is Aubrey. And it was God's little gift to me in that moment. Like, hey, don't take all this like, hey, I'm all about you stuff. He ain't about you. Not that that's why you get in the pastor and you would crumble if that's why. But it's the same thing someone saying, I'm all about Jesus. What about his death? I'm not, what? What death? You're not about Jesus if you're not about his death. Like at this church, we are gospel-centered, outward-focused. We could have been Jesus-centered and others-focused. We could have used whatever words. We can wordsmith whatever we want when we're writing the documents. We are gospel-centered, outward-focused. Why gospel and not Jesus? Here's why. I meet with lots of church people, church leaders of all sorts of denominational rankings. And almost every denomination I meet with is very Jesus-y. I'm all about Jesus. But then you get into the nuts and bolts. What's the gospel? They have completely left it behind. So you could be about Jesus, all his interactions on earth. He's feeding the poor. He's taking care of the down and out. He's all about the marginalized. He's all about the women who are being overlooked. He's all about all these, all these things. You can be very Jesus-y, but if it doesn't land on his death and resurrection and center itself there, you are missing Jesus. Jesus Christ is the most gospel-centered person in the world. You've got to be about his death and resurrection if you're going to be about Jesus. And Jesus knew that. He says, that's why for this purpose, I came. But here's the other thing as I think about Jesus' death. If that's the center of how he views his life, how he views his purpose, I came to die as a sacrifice, an innocent sacrifice. I didn't deserve this, but I'll receive it for you guys. What do we, as Christians in this world that has every religious option on the table with people we interact with in our families in our homes in our workplaces in our neighbor wherever we're at every religious option is on the table especially in this western civilization everything's on the table reminds me of the book of eli old denzel washington movie great he's got this he's got a chunk of the old testament and it's apocalyptic world and his job is to save the book of eli such a good movie and he's you know moving across the country saving the book saving the book and i'm like this is going to be the greatest movie of all time and it ended garbage because he does this at the very end he takes the book of Eli the book the word of God and he places it on a shelf next to the Quran, next to Socrates next to all the sort of enlightened thinkers and worldviews and religious and that's where the movie ends as a way to say that's what life's about give every person a fair shot every religion is on the same shelf and we as Christians say no not at all but what's our invitation to people how do we say, this is a better option. Jesus, that book is the one you want to pull down, I promise. Part of it is this, for this purpose I came. He came to die. We deal with all sorts of brokenness in our own lives, and the people around us come from all sorts of brokenness. And how are they going to go from making sense of all their baggage, all their suffering, all their pain, all their family history, all this stuff that has wrecked them, all this suffering that's done to them, all this stuff, and then take, oh, I'll listen to you in your Jesus talk. What's, what's the bridge from this broken world to Jesus really's answer? It's the cross. 
you can trust Jesus because he went through the same stuff you went through. He got into the mess with us. He took it on. I mean, a silly little example, but my kids, you know, we have a pool, and they've been in the pool for like three months now. Just absurd. It's like six degrees in February, like 15 degrees, and now it's still cold, and I won't get in. And they want to play pool basketball all the time, so I just do what a good dad does. I'll play from the side. I never get in the water. I just drain threes, and I dominate the Watt boys in pool basketball. Most religions, gods, world leader types are just on the outskirts getting the glory without ever getting into the cold water. And we serve a God who got into the cold water. It wasn't just cold water. It was sin and dirtiness and all the brokenness that we've created. And he got into it with us and he took that on. That's why we can, whatever brokenness you have, I have a God who knows what it's like to live in a broken world. He actually took on that brokenness for you and for me. That is good news. Great news. The best news. The gospel news. Nothing better. And in this little interaction here, how does God the Father respond to Jesus in this moment? Verse 28, then a voice came from heaven. What does God think about him? His son. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. What's significant about that? He has the approval of the Father in this moment as well. Like, here's one thing that I can never relate to people with as I counsel, and just the father wound. Lots of people have this sort of deep father wound that's kind of just at the core of their being. And I have a great dad, and I don't have any sense of that. But most of the world is like working out of some sort of father wound. And they're like craving, does my dad approve of me? I remember when I was a high school math teacher, so many kids would just be crying at the end of the graduation, like there's no dad there. I remember one kid, David, like, I just don't know if I have what it takes to walk out into manhood. Like, just break your heart, stuff. Why? Because he's got no dad there to say, I'm for you. I approve of you. And what we see in this is God the Father approves of Jesus. There's three times from heaven the Father speaks in the Gospels. The first one is the baptism. Remember what he says? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. It's beautiful. Fast forward, transfiguration. He's got his three guys, Peter, James, and John. He kind of pulls back and shows him his Superman, his glory a little bit, and says this is what it's going to be like after this hour and then God the Father speaks again. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And the third and final time is in this moment, he answers his question. Glorify it. And God the Father says, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Meaning in the death and resurrection that is to come. What do we take from this? God the Father approves of Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? The Bible speaks of being a Christian in this language. You are in Christ. You're either out of Christ, in Adam, you're an old self, or you're in Christ. You've been made new by faith. If you're in Christ, here's what this means. The approval of the Father that is given to Jesus because of his obedience is now yours. And you don't have to fight and to strive to be approved of and just, oh, I want my, I am well pleased in Jesus. And now by faith, that is ours. That is good news. The Father approves of the Son, and we are in the Son, so we get the Father's approval. Jesus 
took all that weight to the death and resurrection. What's the next thing we see? Verse 31. Now Jesus sort of flips. He gets a little more poignant. Is where we t- you see him talking about victory. No moment has given us greater victory. Let's see verse 31 through verse 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What victory is gained by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection? John Piper is an author and a pastor. He has a book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And every single one of them are right and good. Here's what, as a pastor, what I would say. There are right good answers to the question, why did Jesus have to die? What was accomplished in Jesus' death? I'd also say this in a challenging sort. There are very wrong answers to the question, what was accomplished in Jesus' death? You need to be aware of those. But as a follower of Jesus who's just trying to make it day to day, here's what I'd say. It says this about Mary, mother of Jesus. She pondered these things and treasured them up in her heart. When you think about the answer, what did Jesus' death accomplish? Do you have anything to treasure in your heart that are good, right answers to that question? Because that's what Jesus goes to now is, what is my death going to accomplish? When is it going to be accomplished? What's it going to accomplish? The when is there. Jesus says, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rulers be cast out. So when does Jesus think this victory is available? Now. What does he mean by now? He's talking about his death and resurrection. Here's what's troubling for some people as you try to make sense. And just what makes Christianity uniquely difficult is we believe in this good God with good purposes and he's all gracious and all loving and all kind and yet we live in a world that is broken. And it doesn't seem like God who is good is in control. And yet Jesus says, now the victory is here. How do we think about the now of the victory? Redemption, we like to use this term already but not yet. Now, in Jesus' death and resurrection, victory was started. And then Jesus is coming back again when all the victory will be understood fully, once and for all, and never again will we wonder, is God really in charge of this world? But now that Jesus is talking about, is his death and resurrection? The best illustration is to think about World War II. When was World War II won? Victory Day, there's a victory day in Europe, there's a victory day in Japan, but when was like the war like, we got this? D-Day, they stormed the beaches of Normandy, and that's when they knew victory is ours. Then it took another 10 months, 12 months to actually seal victory. Jesus' cross and resurrection is D-Day. It's when the start of the world gets changed, when victory happens. And what is happening in this victory? He says judgment now is the judgment of this world. That is an odd way to describe victory. Now judgment is here. What's he mean? Now, judgment is here. Here's what I've been thinking about. If this never happened, if Jesus' judgment never came, what are we left with to actually like judge and assess? Because here's what I think about this world we live in currently. And as a newer church, I kind of think through how to bring up stuff that may frustrate you, but whatever. Here we go. We live in a world that is the most tolerant, and this is mainly towards kind of younger generation, 
the most tolerant. All things are tolerated. All things are tolerated. Simultaneously, it's the most judgmental, woke, anti-whatever, cancel culture of all time. So we open to everything. We also judge immediately everything. And at the same time, simultaneously, we are the most thin-skinned, weak people ever placed on this earth. Would you agree with that assessment? Is it in this room or not? Tolerant of all things, judgmental of all things, politically, whatever, everything is getting judged all the time in all places and all, and at the same time, no one can actually take a punch in these conversations. So what are we to do with this world? Jesus says, now the judgment is here. We as Christians don't have to live in that world where who's actually the judge here? We get to rest saying, the judge is here. His name is Jesus. And I know it doesn't look like he's the one assessing everything, but he is. Second Corinthians says this about him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, good or evil. Translation, it is a hard world to navigate as you try to enter into heated discussions. As we talk about gender and all these things we're going to tackle in the fall, politics, whatever it is, you start to enter in and you face tolerance and judgment and thin-skinned people all the time. As Christians, we say, I, I know Jesus is my ultimate judge. And that, that's not a green light to be a total jerk. That's a sort of, I know who is ultimately watching me and who ultimately matters that's watching this situation. Like a little over a year ago, Kobe Bryant passed away. And I, you know, I was shaking because he's like the top athlete of my generation. I hate the Lakers, so it's not like I'm a Kobe fan, but like that dude is the top. And I was just shaken by the fact that he was dead. Like, hey, he's a young guy and he passed away. And I remember talking with my buddy Tony, and he's like, man. And he was shaken by something else, and it was fascinating. He said, nobody in basketball held people to a higher standard than Kobe Bryant. Nobody made his teammates reach a standard above anything higher than what Kobe Bryant demanded. This was his standard, and now that guy is dead, and he has faced the one with a higher standard than he could ever imagine. It was just kind of like, a, oh, that's right. That's what we believe about Jesus. Whatever our standard is in parenting and school and politics and how people interact online, all of our standards pale in comparison to Jesus, the judge. What else do we get from Jesus being the judgment? He's our standard of righteousness. What does it look like to be good in this world? The Old Testament used this term, be holy as I am holy. And then it gives us all these laws to shape the people of God. Here's what it looks like to live a holy life, a life that God looks at and is pleased. And now fast forward to the New Testament. All that gets bound up in the person of Jesus. And now when we ask the question, what does it mean to be holy? The answer is this, be like Jesus. The old bracelets, I think they're coming back. What would Jesus do is the question for the Christian. He is the standard. And here's where I think most people kind of camp out on that. What does it mean that Jesus was perfect? He's the standard. What does that mean to be like Jesus? Well, it means don't sin. And me and I think a lot of people, what they mean by that is don't sin. Don't do things you shouldn't do. You don't use your money poorly. You don't cheat. You don't steal. You don't look at the opposite of sex inappropriately. You don't, don't do all those bad things. And that is absolutely true. Those are sins of commission. You don't commit sins. You don't do what you shouldn't do. But Jesus also had zero sins of omission. 
Omission is doing what you're supposed to do. Doing the loving thing in every situation. Coming into this church on Sunday at 4 p.m., Jesus would always walk in here and he would perfectly love in every interaction. He never left love on the table that could have been had. We leave love on the table all the time because it's painful, it's, it's not comfortable, I don't like that person, they're weird, they smell, I don't like their kids. And we leave love on the table all the time. The Bible says that's sin. If you don't do what you ought to do, that is sin. So Jesus is our standard. But he's also this as our judge. He shows us how serious God thinks of sin. How bad is sin? Well, Aubrey the other day was telling me, trying to tell me about this sin in my life. And I'm like, eh, is that really sin? She's like, well, yeah. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> really? Tomato, tomato. I don't. She's right. Jesus is more right. It's sin. And what's the cost of sin? God says it takes the death of his own son. It's serious. So we can play games with words and kind of make ourselves out to be as good as we want. But in the end, Jesus' death on the cross shows us just how serious sin actually is. Judgment is here. The victory is won. We don't have to overthink the judgment. We let Jesus be the judge. That's the good news. What's the next thing we see? Now, also, at the second half of that verse, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's the second thing Jesus talked about with victory. Now the ruler of this world, that's a way to talk about Satan, the deceiver, the serpent, the bad guy of this world, will be cast out. Now, on my death and resurrection, in that moment, Satan will be cast out. Hallelujah. What exactly does that mean? Because it doesn't seem like Satan's gone. My Passion of Christ, you know, old movie, Mel Gibson movie, so good. I don't remember all of it. I know Jesus dies in it, but there's two moments that I remember vividly because they like, as a former kind of Catholic kid trying to always get a picture of God that wasn't so like removed, there's this moment where he's interacting with his mom and he kind of splashes water on his mom's face and they kind of giggle. And it's like, oh, Jesus was like a real person who like messed around with his mom and like, joked like oh great but the other moment is this moment here serpent will be cast out he's in the garden of gethsemane he's praying and he's bleeding it says he's praying so intensely that he's bleeding out of his arms and out of his body and he's praying and he gets up and he starts to walk and a snake slithers by and he steps on the head of the snake as a way to say genesis 3 just happened Genesis 1 and 2, the world's perfect. Genesis 3, the snake shows up and screws everything up. And Adam and Eve listen to him. And that is the prince of this world that we're talking about. But in Genesis 3, it says, the serpent's head will be crushed. And Mel Gibson nails it with Jesus stomping on his head. Now exactly how much has Satan been removed from this world? Like, that's a great image. I love it. It's like... That'll preach all day. Yeah, Satan's been stomped on. But he's still seemingly active. Even Revelation, if you read further in the Bible, it, Satan's depicted as a dragon. He starts as a snake, ends as a dragon. So there's almost like he's growing in influence. How do we think about what was cast out about Satan? Augustine says this, and I think he gets pretty close to what God wants us to know. He says, where is he, the serpent, cast out from? 
from heaven and earth, from this created universe? No, he is cast out of the hearts of believers. Since the invader has been cast out, let the Redeemer dwell within, because the same one who created us was also the one who redeemed. The devil now assaults from without, but does not conquer the Redeemer, who has now taken possession of the believer. The devil assaults from without by throwing various temptations into believer, but the person to whom God speaks within and who has the anointing of the Spirit does not have to consent to these temptations. Where has Satan been cast out? For sure out of us as believers in Jesus Christ. And that is great news. But he still seems to have some sway in this world. What's the best way to think about him? The Apostle Paul in Romans, when he's trying to describe what the law is and how it relates to us, he's like, let me give this analogy. It's like a marriage. Suppose the spouse dies. You are no longer bound to that spouse. That's what law is to you. It was the spouse that is now deceased. That spouse is out of your life. That's what it means to be a follower of Christian. What Satan is like this. This is the best way I can think of it. He's like an ex-spouse. Not dead. We may have prayed for it. It's still around. Still influencing. But not tied to you. Not intimately involved. Not living in your house. Not there. But still around. Kind of affecting your life in negative ways. Satan has been cast out. Jesus says, one day, when this day comes, it'll be fully cast out. But for now, we Christians have victory over Satan. Amen? Here's the next thing we see in that. Verse 32. The third victory. I will draw all people to myself. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The death of Jesus has opened the door from God to all people. All people can look on him and be saved. All people. Now as a Bible teacher, you have to know this. Words matter a lot. And some people read that. All will be drawn to him. Does Jesus mean all, every single individual person will be drawn to him? There's branches of Christianity, universalism, that teach that all people will be in relationship with Jesus. How do we make sense of that? Usually the best way is to stay in the context of the passage and try to understand what's being said here. And in this, John Demeter taught last week, and he taught that Jesus turns... And it's been Jewish, 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 Jewish. And now these Greek people have showed up. And they want this salvation that's being talked about. And now Jesus is in that context. Jew and Greek. Jewish and non-Jewish. All will be drawn to myself. So if we're talking about the context, I think what John is saying is all tribes, all tongues. This isn't a Jewish thing. This is a world thing. All tribes, tongues will be drawn to myself. I mean, even think about your own story, right? Don't know fully where all my ancestors come from, but some come from Ireland, some come from Mexico, landed in Mexico during the Great Depression, got sent into the States. And I, son of Irish-Mexican immigrants, believe in the Jesus of the Old Testament, the Jewish Messiah. Why? Because this passage is true. All people will be drawn when I am lifted up. That is good news, and we get to take that news out to this world. All people, if you look at them, and believe on him, and trust in him, will be saved. That is good news. That's our responsibility. And that leaves us with the final thing. Jesus never wants us to, like, study the Bible and have great truths and nuggets in our head and walk out of here unchanged and go back to life as is. He wants us to do something with it. Verse 34 gives us the, what do we do with this? 
So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So you get there. The Messiah is here. We believe it. We've always been taught by the Old Testament scriptures that this is going to last forever. This is a done deal. We can kind of get in cruise control and just enjoy this party. Even the book of Acts where the church starts, they're sitting around and they're like, Jesus, is now the time where the kingdom's in and we just get to chill and ride this thing out. He's like, you don't understand the seasons, you don't understand much. And this is the same interaction. Isn't this forever? Yes, but not in the way you think. Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. What's Jesus telling them? I wrote down a few things. The time is ticking for them in this moment, but Jesus is also wanting that to carry on into this moment. While you have the light, the clock is ticking. The now of the death and resurrection of Jesus is coming with a second coming of Jesus. The end of the Bible ends with this. Come soon, Lord Jesus. He's coming in a little while longer. How long is a little while longer? Jesus intentionally never gives us specifics. He says a little while longer. The time is ticking. What else do I see in this? Just know that, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus in this room, it says, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. It's not like your option is choose Jesus. Nah, I don't want to. I'm going to live in this neutral ground. The Bible doesn't give us a neutral ground to sort of make decisions about Jesus. It's choose Jesus, walk in the light, believe in the light, or walk in this world and the darkness is overtaking people. It's a dark world with the darkness illustrated as on the move and overtaking. So that's what you get. You get believe in the light or live in this world and the darkness might just overtake you. Believe now. Even this ends beautifully. We didn't read it, but I want you to see. If you have a Bible there, the next section says the unbelief of the people. So the end of verse 36 ends like this. When Jesus had said these things, the things we just walked through, he departed and hid himself from them. So look up here real quick. Here's the illustration. Jesus is teaching these, believe now, walk in the light while you still have the light. Believe, believe in the light. And it's like he's almost walking backwards. Believe in the light while you still have time. Look right there in your Bible. Believe while you still have light. And then you look up and he's gone. That's intentionally there by John the writer. He's a great writer to show you that's how it is. Like you don't get all the time you think you get. Believe now. And Jesus departed and he was gone. That's the world we live in. The clock is ticking. The darkness is here. What do we do with that? Two things. If you're not a Christian, I'll be as simple as I can. Belief in the light. Who's the light? Jesus is the light of the world. Believe in Jesus while you still can. If you are a follower of Jesus, what do you take from this passage? The very end of it says this. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. If you're a Christian, here's how the Bible would describe you in this passage. You have become sons, translation, sons and daughters of light. That's beautiful. That's your role. I preached at Redemption Pure this morning, and I was talking to a guy who just got out of prison. He'd been there for 15 years. And he met Jesus, and he went to seminary in prison. Now he's just on fire, wants to tell the world about Jesus. 
And none of his brothers are Christians. And his brother's all successful. Everything you'd want out of a son, his brother is. Nothing I want for my sons is in this guy. Yet he met Jesus, loved Jesus, and he's talking about his brother. He just wants more and more and more. And I was talking to him like, what do you think is the next thing that's going to actually make you happy? He's like, I don't know, I think this. Or, you know, the boat or the yacht or the third kid. Or the... He's like, the only thing that's going to make you happy, what you're looking for is a relationship. And that's how this ends, that you have become sons and daughters. At our core, we must remember, we are the sons and daughters of God. Not because we did anything, but because Jesus provided the victory. He bore the sin that we should have bore. He kicked Satan out, not us. He won the battle. And now we are sons and daughters. And what do we do with that? Just walk around bragging? No, it says we are sons and daughters of the light. That is our job to bear the name of Jesus as sons and daughters of the Father and bring light into a world that is dark and the darkness is sticking around and it's still here. Christians, we are children, sons and daughters of the light by grace and grace alone. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for John who wrote just so beautifully and just how he walks us through the life of Jesus, where there's these clear moments where we see exactly who Jesus is, and in us we see Jesus troubled by what lays ahead. And we're reminded that the cross was costly, more costly than any of us could ever comprehend. So God, let us feel that, not weight that we need to carry, but appreciation of the weight that was carried. And God, let us rest in the victory that Jesus has won. Let's not strive to be victorious on our own or to defeat the things in this world that are weighing us down, but to rest in the victory of the cross. And God, let us live with a sense of urgency. God, this whole world is trying to get back to the speed that they were at prior to all that went down. And God, I just sense that most people, the speed they want is not what you want and you're not on the radar of most people so i pray for us followers of jesus in this room that the sense of urgency that comes from being your follower would be real that we would not be hyper anxious people but we'd be very aware of the urgency of the gospel and the opportunity we have now to be children of light so god for us as we enter into the summer season as a church, pray we'd be urgent with our neighbors. We'd be urgent with our own children. We'd be urgent with our family members. And we also be just deeply hopeful and trusting in you and your sovereignty to do the work. So God, help us to bear your name well. Thank you for this time in your word once again. In Jesus' name I pray.